going to begin reading from verse 57 in just a moment. You've heard the old saying, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Now that has come to mean don't get distracted in life from what you are supposed to be doing. Don't lose focus. Because if you do, if you take your eye off the ball, if you get distracted, and if you lose focus, in certain situations you're going to lose. You're going to pay a very high price, and you're going to miss opportunity. It occurred to me that the I think the greatest difficulty with this is that those who have taken their eyes off the ball, that has become the norm for them. You may have taken your eye off the ball 10 or 20 years ago, or a year or five ago, or maybe a little bit more recently. But when you take your eyes off the ball and you allow for distractions to hijack your faculties, then that arena becomes your norm and you no longer even recognize that you took your eyes off the ball. And so my prayer somehow, some way, is that God could even bring conviction to those who are in such a position. Things happen very fast in life. That's why life requires focus, daily focus, sometimes hourly. You take your eyes off the ball even for one hour sometimes, uh, and you can pay a dear price for that because opportunities uh, can be lost uh, very quickly. Now, the term keeping your eye on the ball comes from the world of baseball. If you've ever played uh, organized baseball, uh, one of the first things you will ever hear a coach say to you uh, uh, when you're at bat uh, is uh, the coach will say, son, do not take your eye off the ball. That's what kids do. They'll be there. The ball's on its way. Uh, and he might look at his bat, might look down at the plate, and then it's too late. Don't take your eye off the ball. If you keep your eye on the ball, your hand coordination has a greater uh, success rate, hand-eye coordination. In other words, your hands are going to do what your brain is telling you to do because uh, uh, you're looking at the ball. That's why it is so critical and so crucial. If you, don't take, if you take your eye off the baseball, you're not going to be able to hit successfully. Now, that has become a saying in our culture because that same principle can work in other areas. In other sports, uh, it uh, is relevant. A wide receiver is running a long route. He's running toward the sideline, and the ball is thrown. And he's worried about running out of bounds. And so for a split second, the ball's already on the way. He'll maybe not even barely turn his head and try to get a glance at the sideline too late. You're going to drop the ball. You can't catch it. Take your eye off it. 
Do your best to stay in bounds. Try to imagine where those sidelines, but don't take your eye off the ball because if you do, the likelihood is that you're not going to be able to catch it. Now, all of this, of course, has a, a very powerful spiritual application. And here's what I want to say at this point. There are people sitting here this morning. You've taken your eye off the ball. Distracted from what matters most in life. It could be sin, but that's not what Jesus is dealing with in the text. He's not dealing with sin at all. A lot of things fall into the category of distractions that are not evil or not wrong in and of themselves. Taking your eye off the ball can happen to churches. That's why it's relevant to preach uh, this on World Evangelism Sunday, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That is going to require a lot of focus, a lot of concentration. We cannot afford to take our eye off the ball, not for a single moment. Very easy in life on a number of levels to get distracted. So let's go to our text. Luke chapter 9. This is a powerful uh, statement here that is worth uh, examining for our purposes today. Luke 9, beginning in verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, he's telling him, look, it's not going to be easy to follow me. It's a metaphor that he's using. It's not going to be easy. You're saying, follow you. I want to follow you like it's going to be this very easy. It's not going to be easy. And then another said to Jesus, and then rather Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And then another said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid farewell to them who are in my house. But Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so very much. Let every one of us right now express gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you have given to us, your Son, his blood, the resurrection, your church, Lord God, with which we can gather together this morning and benefit from the ministry of your word. Change our lives here today. Move on us at this altar. Let this altar be a place of miracle transformation, drawing us closer to yourself and your purpose. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Beware 
of the distractions of life. This is a very common experience or testimony. People get distracted. Diverted. As a matter of fact, I can call it the strategy of distraction. Life is very complex. Yours is. It's made up of a lot of different components. And it's very hard to do just one thing. And to maintain your focus on the single most important thing at any given moment. Our hearts are vulnerable to diversions and distractions. The basketball player has gotten fouled. He's standing at the free throw line. And so what do you see quite often at the basketball game? He's standing at the free throw line. He's fairly close to the fans that are behind the basket. And they start waving and shouting. They're trying to distract him. They're calling him names. And they're doing all kind, making noise and making motion. Because that basketball player has to focus on what he is doing. There, there is hand-eye coordination. It's important what he's looking at. His focus and his concentration matters. And if they can break that and distract him for a split second, he might miss in golf. You know, a lot of games like football and uh, sometimes baseball and certainly basketball, there's always a lot of noise going on. But in golf, I remember Tiger Woods one time slammed his club down and went over to the gallery where the crowd was because somebody was snapping a photograph and it was making a snapping noise. And that really bothered Tiger. He couldn't focus, apparently. High levels of concentration are required. You can't allow yourself to be distracted. The Apostle Paul wrote about this. Philippians chapter 3, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is athletic terminology. And he's talking about if you're going to win the race, you better focus. You better concentrate. You better keep your eye on the tape or the ribbon or the finish line. And you better not look back. You better not get diverted and distracted. You better not let your mind wander from the form and the strategy that is involved, and you better maintain your focus. You cannot afford to allow yourself in life in certain critical moments to be distracted. We so easily lose sight of what matters most in life. It happens to all of us at certain times. A lot of things are vying for the affections of our heart. You can be moving in one direction 
loving one thing and then something else comes along, another lover makes a move uh, and it's in our peripheral vision uh, and we want to know what that's all about. Uh, and so we shift gears. Uh, all of a sudden we're no longer passionate about this one thing like we once were. Uh, now something else has our attention. That can happen uh, to any single one of us. Jesus said, he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. I always do those things that please him. That's focus. That's committing yourself to one thing. That's keeping your eye on the ball. I do always those things that please him. Let me ask you a question. At what point did you stop doing that? Analyzing your actions, is this pleasing to God? Or does it not matter anymore? Are there other considerations? What is convenient? What is easy? What doesn't require a price or the shedding of blood or any kind of pain? What are the considerations that drive the actions that you take in your life? Jesus said, I do always only those things that please my Father. That means that he gave consideration to how he was living each hour and every day, making sure that the exercise of his life and how he conducted himself was going to be pleasing to his heavenly Father. When did we stop doing that? At what point? Consider the possibility here. We allow ourselves to get distracted. We take our eye off the ball. And then we end up somewhere other than we need to be. And then that becomes our normal. We don't view it as wrong or we wouldn't even identify it as a distraction. That's not what's happening uh, in our text. These people uh, that are saying, let me go uh, bid farewell or let me go bear, they're not saying uh, that's a distraction to the will of God. Jesus is the one saying that. They're not saying it. He is. They don't see it as a distraction. And sometimes we get distracted by things we don't see them as distractions. When I say it can happen to anyone, I mean it. It can happen to a great prophet. It can happen to a great man of God. Elijah was running for his life from Jezebel. Remember that? Disappointments of life. Frustrations of life. He thinks Jezebel and Ahab, maybe they'll get saved now. No. She puts a death sentence on his life. He gets discouraged, demoralized, takes his eye off the ball and runs into the wilderness. And the Bible says there he went into a cave, spent the night, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Took his eye off the ball. Because of the disappointments of life, he fled from his calling. He ran from his place and he detached himself temporarily from God's will. As I said, that can happen to anyone and we need what we need 
In this service today, we need to ascertain whether that has happened to us. Have we taken our eye off the ball? It can be in a marriage. It could be with a ministry. It can be in your relationship with God. It can be on your job. It can be in other relationships of life. It could be in your, uh, uh, um, in your discipleship processes. We take our eyes off the ball. Now, I want to talk here about some of the distractions of life that are common. That, and these are my observation, observations over years of uh, being a Christian and being a pastor and observing things. The common distractions of life. And not necessarily, of course, in this order, but one of them is offense. I think that this may be one of the greatest and most common ways that people get their eye off the ball. And this is going to be a test for everyone because all of us are going to be offended. Listen to this question. And I think this is going to relate to every single one of us. Are you able to suffer offense and keep your eye on the ball? Or does it get you all whacked out? Angry and bitter and mad and distracted and detached. Are you able to suffer offense? You're cruising along, doing the will of God, loving Jesus, loving people, involved in ministry, and then out of nowhere, someone deeply offends you. I'm talking about the crushing bruising kind of offense that happen in life. Somebody hurts you. Somebody betrays you or violates you in some way. Offense causes a lot of people to take their eye off the ball, maybe more than almost anything else because offense is such a common experience of life. This is why so much of the New Testament uh, is on the subject of forgiveness. Uh, When Jesus was uh, talking to his disciples, some of his very last words uh, uh, over and over again from John 13 uh, to John 15, uh, which was uh, uh, Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples uh, over and over again. He said, love one another because he knows uh, that after he ascends into heaven, uh, and they're left to themselves, Uh, there's going to be offense. uh, And if they're going to keep their eyes on the ball uh, of world evangelism, uh, they're going to have to keep their hearts right with each other. Uh, They're going to have to love each other. Uh, They're going to have to forgive one another. And they're not going to be able to afford to allow offense uh, uh, to take their eye off the ball. Galatians says in chapter 5, verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. That's what offense can do. You end up biting and devouring and being consumed. Your eyes not on the ball anymore of serving God, doing His will, serving in ministry, loving people, and all of that. Our faculties, our emotions, our direction, and our decision has now been hijacked by offense. We've taken our eyes off the ball. King David had a sister named 
Zeruiah. And Zeruiah had a son named Joab. Joab, therefore, was David's nephew. So when David became king, uh, Joab uh, became part of the court of the king, David's nephew. And Joab was such a courageous man and such a uh, intelligent man. He was made commander uh, of the army of Israel, uh, a very powerful position, uh, a very high position, uh, and one in which Joab executed his duties uh, very, very successfully uh, in subduing enemies uh, and uh, bringing great victory. Uh, But one day, uh, Joab's brother Asahel uh, was killed by Abner. And Joab could not let that go uh, until he brought vengeance uh, and he tricked Abner uh, uh, into taking a walk with him. uh, And when they were on that walk, he pulled out his dagger uh, and stabbed him in the stomach uh, and killed him. Uh, Joab gets revenge. Uh, Joab's faculties uh, have now been hijacked uh, by offense uh, and he's bitter uh, and he's angry uh, and he became uh, a very bloody man from that point forward. He had a great destiny. He had a great future. He had favor with the king. He had an incredible position. He had the favor of God working in his life, but he took his eye off the ball. Another common distraction that causes men and women to get their eye off the ball is materialism and the cares of this life. This is an area where all of us need to use caution. Because on the one hand, God wants to bless us. Spiritually, emotionally, materially, financially. God wants to bless us. But I watch so many men get blessed and then they take their eye off the ball. Now they're no longer doing what they once did in terms of discipleship and pursuing ministry and pursuing the will of God. Now materialism and the spirit that's connected to it has hijacked their faculties and it's always rationalized. It's always justified. It's always spiritualized. But the bottom line is, eye off the ball, now you're diverted. It doesn't take very long or very much for that to happen. Rich young ruler is on a correct trajectory, going in the right direction when he comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what do I have to do to have everlasting life? He's moving in the right direction. He's obviously convicted about some things and he goes to Jesus What do I have to do to have eternal life? When he finds out it's going to cost him money, the Bible says he went away sorrowful for he had much riches and he immediately took his eye off the ball. Doesn't take very much. His wealth, the pursuit of them, the protecting of them, and his material possessions became a a distraction from the sacred call of Jesus Christ. Moses came to a point in his life where he had to make a choice. And it says in Hebrews, by faith Moses, when he came of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. How hard was it for Moses to keep his eye on the ball of God's calling for his life when he has a palace and he has riches and he has favor and he has position. A lot of people take their eye off the ball for that very reason and this is what we see Moses doing. He keeps his eye on the ball, is willing to walk away from the financial gain that would have been his had he remained in place in order to pursue the will of God. Now that is not always the case, but sometimes that is the case. First Timothy 6 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That means that money has a spirit and that spirit can get a hold of you and can begin to drive uh, bad decisions. Uh, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, For some uh, have strayed from the faith uh, in their greediness uh, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Uh, I've watched people do that, but I've never heard one person say, uh, I am straying, uh, and this is going to pierce me with many sorrows. Uh, It's always rationalized uh, and spiritualized uh, and justified, uh, but the reality is uh, that money uh, and the pursuit of it, uh, uh, not that it's wrong. There are times when you do those things. Uh, There are businessmen uh, and others that pursue uh, contracts and business and increase uh, and enlargement. You go to uh, college to get an education uh, so you can make a better wage. Uh, Nothing evil uh, and nothing nefarious about that, but there may come a moment in your life when you have to make a choice, like Moses did, uh, like the rich young ruler was challenged to do. The love of money has gotten a lot of people to take their eye off the ball. Another common distraction is the pull of the old life. This is always a factor. The lure and the longing for sin can remain for a lifetime. It has a very long shelf life. Post-conversion, post-deliverance, you know you're saved, you know you've been delivered, and you find yourselves battling with the same temptations. Sin has a gravitational pull. It will pull on you. It will draw you to itself. And because of sin and the distracting nature of sin and temptation, it's very easy to take your eye off the ball. When Lot was in the process, or rather God was in the process, of extracting Lot and his wife and daughters from Uh, from Sodom, uh, essentially what God said was, uh, I want you to look only forward, uh, not behind. Uh, Do not uh, take your eye off the ball. Jesus himself recalled that ancient story. And he said, likewise, this is Luke 17, 28, likewise, uh, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in that day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, 
He who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. The second shortest verse in the Bible. Remember that woman who took her eye off the ball. She's going in the right direction. She's in church. She's heard the word of God. She's made a decision. She's getting up. But she longs for Sodom. The memories of the pleasures of sin. The old appetites uh, that had uh, captivated uh, your flesh. Uh, all of a sudden she was in a moment of overwhelming uh, longing for her. And she turns around and judgment fell. She took her eye off the ball because of the pull of the old life. Now let's talk about the consequences of taking your eye off the ball. What we need here is discernment. I think that's what this text is actually all about. People have a hard time recognizing what is a distraction. I mean, something to do with my mijito and mijita could not possibly be a distraction. Something to do with work. My livelihood could not possibly be a distraction. We need discernment to be able to ascertain what is a distraction. Let me bury my father. Let me bid them farewell. To those, it's not a distraction. Jesus said, if you attend to that above my will, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. (laughs) Jesus said some pretty radical things. These are traditions. These are traditional family considerations. Recognized in Jesus' day as necessary, uh, as essential, uh, let me go bury my father. His father wasn't dead yet, you see. The tradition was uh, that you stayed with your elderly parents, uh, uh, took care of them until they passed away. Then you could go about uh, taking care of the business of life. Uh, Let me bid them farewell who are at my house uh, visiting in those days sometimes. uh, uh, And maybe today it does too, but it's two or three months. Uh, that somebody's in your house uh, and he's saying, let me go stay until they leave. That's a, and Jesus said, no, no, that's not how we're going to roll here in the kingdom of God. You're going to have to learn to figure out what's a distraction. Most people wouldn't recognize tending to that. Those things in our text is taking your eye off the ball. A husband is consumed with work, and he's making good money, and they live in a nice house, and they have late model automobiles. But the wife is at home, agonizing, feeling empty, neglected. But because he's doing good and is successful, he doesn't see it. 
as taking his eye off the ball. He's going to rationalize. Look at how much good. Look at how much benefit we're able to get and have materially because of what I'm doing. But you see, in your marriage, you've taken your eye off the ball. And you haven't given her proper consideration. Life is about opportunities. They're here now, but they may not be here tomorrow. You better not take your eye off the ball during the years you have to be with your children and raise them. You know the old song, I'm not going to sing it, but it's one of uh, those songs that has a very powerful emotional uh, message, and it's uh, the song Cats in the Cradle. It's about a father uh, who was very busy. His son uh, was born And the son gets a baseball glove and a baseball and asks his dad to play catch, can't, too busy, off here, off there. And then that son grows up and uh, and the father calls him and says, hey, son, I'd like to talk to you for a while. Can't, Dad. I'm so busy now. The kids are sick. Uh, I got to go to work right now. Don't have time. And the father puts the phone down. And one of the lines in that song is, he's grown up just like me. That first father took his eye off the ball. The years he had to be with his son. Listen, being with your children is more important than any amount of money you might earn. Those years, that investment, those experiences that you invest in your children, you have opportunity now. That opportunity is going to be gone one day, and you will not be able to recapture it. You better not take your eye off the ball when it comes to raising your children. We need discernment and we need to recognize our calling. Jesus said, and this is how this ties into World Evangelism Sunday, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world. That's a message to us. We have to figure out a way to do that. Jesus said that to his disciples. And left it to them, energized by the Holy Spirit, to go do it. In the book of Acts, Jesus put it this way, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You think about, I mentioned this to our serious men's class, think about what that was going to cost them. What kind of a price was going to be extracted if they actually did that and went to the ends of the earth without any mechanization, no transportation of any kind other than walking? The first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul was about 1,500 miles. The second one was 3,000 miles, and he did all of that on foot over many months through hardship and weather and bandits and difficulty and hunger And all of those things. But they had a message. They had a marching order. And they had a commission. So much is at stake. With all that I just mentioned, the Apostle Paul never took his eye off the ball. Never felt sorry for himself. Never quit because of how hard it was. 
Never allowed himself to be diverted and distracted. Whether it was imprisonment, while in prison, he's witnessing. Whether it was out of prison with his needs met, he's in the streets or in the marketplace witnessing and preaching the gospel. This is what I appreciate about leaders in our fellowship. Pastor Mitchell is here uh, Monday, uh, standing behind this pulpit. Uh, he's turning 87 years old in a couple of months, uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, this is what I so appreciate uh, about Pastor Mitchell. Uh, after all these years, never taking his eye off the ball and preaching to us uh, and driving us never to do that as well. So let's look at the consequences where you are at in your life if you have taken your eye off the ball. First of all, if you take your eye off the ball, you're going to lose your burden. So much of what we do depends on love. It depends on a burden and a care for the lost. It depends on compassion. When I went to that outreach last night and stepped into that little parking lot, the atmosphere of that old, broken-down, drug-infested, alcoholic neighborhood, I mean, all the vibes of sin and emptiness of people's lives, people hanging around, wandering around. There was a guy uh, that walked into a liquor store, bought a bunch of alcohol, uh, and uh, so goes life uh, uh, in the neighborhood. As I stepped into that place, uh, I felt an overwhelming burden. Uh, I want to get into more of those neighborhoods. Uh, I don't want to stop it just because the uh, summer ends. Uh, we need to figure out a way to outreach and evangelize. Uh, when you get your eyes off the ball, uh, what becomes a priority to you is your own self, your own world, your own issues. And you can actually be sitting here this morning without much care and without much of a burden for those that are lost and desperate. And you know what we can become? We can become the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I wondered about that parable as I was pondering this sermon. Man gets beaten and left for dead. Priest comes by. He's there naked, bleeding, still alive, but he passes him. And then a Levite comes along. A Levite comes along and does the same. I wondered about that. Were they always like that? Was there once a time in their lives where they cared? They're ministers. One's a priest, one's a Levite. They go to the temple, they interact with God, supposedly, uh, and with people. Uh, I wonder if in their youth uh, or in the early years of their conversion uh, and the life that they were living for God, I wonder if they did have a care uh, and they did have compassion uh, for the sick uh, and the poor and the downtrodden. Uh, but over the years, somewhere along the line, uh, they got their eye off the ball. Uh, and when they got their eye off the ball, uh, they lost their burden, uh, they lost their love, they lost their compassion passion, and now they can quite easily walk by a man who's been beaten and stripped and left for dead. At what point did they lose their compassion, and why did they lose it? I think we need to ask ourselves some of those questions. Secondly, you take your eye off the ball, you're going to lose your vision. We are supposed to be moved in life. 
by what lies ahead. I read this quote and I sent it to my grandsons this past week. You can have whatever you will allow God to put in your heart. What dream is driving you that God has put there? I'm not talking about the buying a nice house, having another kid, or any of those things that are valid and good dreams. What, what, what dream has God put inside your heart that you're pursuing with everything that you have one day? And I sent my grandsons this very scripture here in Genesis 13 along with that quote. You can have whatever you will allow God to put into your heart. And then God gets a hold of Abraham. And he takes a dream that originated with God. And he takes that dream and he puts it inside of Abraham's heart. And then that dream became Abraham's. And he said, for all the land which you see, Abraham, I give you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. He, that lit him up. That set him on fire. Oh, God, how great you are. To involve me in the pursuit of your purpose and your will. And he took that dream and made it his possession. And it became the centerpiece of his life. No dream is automatic. You have to maintain the vision that God has given us. The devil will throw a lot of things to distract individuals and couples and churches. And he'll do everything he can to get the vision that God put inside and take it out. And if you take your eye off the ball, you lose destiny. You lose the future that God has designed for your life. And of all the consequences of taking your eye off the ball, this has to be the most tragic. People who lose destiny over a temporary distraction, over selfishness, over materialism, Sometimes people lose destiny over a tragedy that may happen when they take their eye off the ball. Some hardship comes their way, and it's not as easy as you thought it was going to be, and they take their eye off the ball. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. He is a moment, for a moment, and it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We don't look at things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, Paul is saying, no matter what happens, no matter what beats against my body, my life, no matter what hinders, no matter what opposition comes, I'm not taking my eye off the ball. So let's talk about that. Keeping your eye on the ball. The imagery of the text is very clear and very powerful and very simple. You can't allow yourself to be distracted. In our text, a man is plowing, apparently. That's the imagery he's using. And we don't have this experience today, but we can imagine. 
He's plowing. He's got the tool in front of him that digs into the earth. He's strapped to it. He has a beast of burden, an ox uh, or some other animal that is pulling that plow. And apparently that kind of work requires a very high degree of focus. You have to control the animal. The animal will go whatever way he wants to go unless you're there to control. You have to manage uh, the handling of this very heavy and very large instrument. uh, And it requires all of your faculties. If my father was still alive, I probably would have asked him to come to the stage uh, and describe what this was like because he used to tell me about plowing like that in his youth. If he takes his eye off the ball and looks back, all kinds of things can go haywire. The plow goes in the wrong direction. The animal goes in the wrong. And it doesn't take very much. And he'll end up with a lot of crooked roads because he kept allowing himself to be distracted. Jesus said, if you're doing that and you look back, you're not fit. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. So how do we do this as I close? How do we do this? A farmer has to use his land efficiently. He may not have a very large field. Most of them didn't. It could have been the size of this sanctuary. So you have to plant as much crop as possible, and that can be done most efficiently if every row is straight, one parallel to the other, to the other, to the other throughout the field. If one is crooked somewhere along the line, if you don't correct that, you're going to have a patch of ground that is not going to be very easy to plant a lot of crooked rows because the farmer kept getting distracted means that he's not going to be very efficient with his life, with his calling. You get your eye off the ball, lose focus. You're not controlling the beast of burden. You're not managing the tool that's there. And it's very easy to get diverted and distracted in life and live what many are living today, which is an inefficient life. Three things quickly as I close. If you're going to keep your eye on the ball, you're going to have to recognize, first of all, your need. And I think this is a very difficult task. For the Holy Spirit to engage in this morning because many people who have taken their eye off the ball, uh, the life that they've built as a result of that has now become the norm and they don't even view the things that distracted them as distracting. Let me first go bury my father. Let me bid. Those are good things, Pastor. How could you possibly deny me those things? How could they be wrong? No one having, a, this, this phrase has been on my mind for the last four or five nights. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In the text, Jesus is coming to the conclusion that these are distractions. Going to bury the Father and bidding farewell. Those are distractions from the will of God. 
question is, are they going to be made to come to the same conclusion? That's the hard part. And a lot of people walked away from Jesus, didn't like what he said. And that same dynamic still happens today. Secondly, you're going to need relationships. You're not going to be able to keep your eye on the ball by yourself. I was reading Acts chapter 9 about the Apostle Paul's conversion. When he got knocked down, lightning, the voice of God. And then Jesus said to him, who are, uh, rather Saul said to the Lord, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, uh, who you are persecuting. Uh, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad in that verse is is what they call a cattle prod. It's a stick, maybe six to eight feet long, with a sharp point on the end. And if a cow gets out of line, you're whacking with it. You put the hurt on it. Get him back in line. A goad, a prod. Others have to handle the prod. And this is a powerful instrument. Not that God has to hurt you. Sometimes that may Uh, happen or not. But the point is, we need the influence of others to keep us on the straight and narrow. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. On your own, you're going astray. Bye-bye. See you later from the will of God. You go on your own, and you won't receive correction and the gentle prodding that your brethren or your pastor may bring. You're going to end up astray outside the will of God. You may be able to manage your affairs for a while, but eventually you're going to lose all those things that I mentioned. Lose burden, lose vision, lose destiny. We have powerful hope here today. And that is that you can always change course and recover yourself from the distractions of life. I say always. I mean at least right now. One day the rapture is going to come. won't be able to do it then. Some of your opportunities that you have right now in your marriage and in the raising of your children and such things, opportunities are there, then they're gone. You can't unscramble the egg that you've made. You can't recall the years that you've wasted. So it is true that some opportunities can't come back, but what you can do here this morning at this altar is recover yourself from taking your eye off the ball if, in fact, you ascertain that's what's happening. That's our hope. That's our confidence. And that's what this altar is for. Let's bow our heads this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Wonderful presence of God's conviction here. We need to get to this altar fairly quickly, and we will. The level of conviction that we're feeling is unusual here this morning. God is dealing with people's hearts, touching people's lives, calling you home. Will you hear that call? You take offense. When people try to bring course corrections to your life. Oh, yes, you took your eye off the ball so very long ago. It's all rationalized and justified. But what about burden, your love for souls? What about vision? What about destiny? Jesus asked the question, what good is it if you gain the whole world, but in the end you lose your soul? That means that you can do what is called gain. You can gain, but what good is it if it's not God, if it's not his will, if it's not in pursuit of his purpose for your life? 
as you're praying this morning. Believers are praying. Perhaps you've come to church this morning and you're not right with God. You don't know Jesus as your Savior. You have not been born again. You know who you are. Nobody has to explain what sin is. It is who you are. It is what you feel on the inside. You do wrong and can't stop yourself. You'd like to, but you haven't figured out a way. Your will isn't strong enough in and of itself to get you to stop lying and stealing and being violent and being proud and being abusive. You need Jesus. Only he can deposit love and forgiveness, his personhood into your heart. That gives you the power to overcome sin. I could overcome drugs and alcohol. I could overcome emotional dysfunction in my life, not because I had a powerful will, but because of Jesus, what he did for me. If he did it for me, he can do it for you. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. There's a wonderful grace, a wonderful love and presence of God here to forgive those that are lost and to change your heart, to change your life, to make you whole, to heal all the deadness and the brokenness that's inside your soul. Conversion is cleansing and washing, taking away the fear and the guilt, the anger and the shame. And if that describes you, Please let me pray for you this morning. I'm imploring you, I'm begging you and asking you, let me pray for you. Will you do that? If so, I want you to do one very simple thing where you're seated. Nobody's looking. I want you just to lift your hand so that I can see it and then pray for you. Lift it up right now. God bless you, son. I see that. Thank you. God love you. God bless you. I see that hand. Thank you. Anyone else? God bless you, sir. I see that. Thank you. Anyone else? Lift your hand right up. God bless you. Amen. Anyone else? God bless you. I see that. Thank you. God is so good. God bless you. Thank you. Amen. Anyone else? Lift your hand up. God's touching hearts. There's a saving dimension of God's love here today. God bless you over there. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I see that. God love you. Anyone else, lift your hand up and join these. Maybe you're backslidden. Maybe it is all about taking your eye off the ball. That's what you did. You took your eye off the ball to go bury your father, to bid those at your house farewell. And I say that metaphorically for all the things that you did that pulled you out of church, pulled you out of ministry, pulled you out of God's purpose and will, even though what you did may have been described as a good thing. Not evil, but it distracted you. And now you're without burden, without vision, without destiny. Lift your hand right now. You're backslidden. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else? Lift your hand right up. God bless you. I see that. Thank you, brother, for that. God's going to bless you for being honest with God. Amen. Anyone else? You're backslidden away from God, eyes off the ball. God, let there be none here. God bless you. I see that, brother. I see that, hand, sister. Thank you. God, let there be none here that you cannot convict who've taken their eyes off the ball. In Jesus' name. I want all of you 
lifted your hand and are still lifting your hands, thank you, to get up out of your seat right now and come and meet me here in the front. Come on to the front. Let me pray with you. Amen. God bless you guys. There are others you raised your hand. Don't know where they all are. Ushers are going to help me. Amen. Somebody else over here on my left. I know there was someone else. Amen. Yes, there you are. Thank you for coming. Oh, God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for this. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this altar right now with these precious souls here. Let us never, ever take this for granted. And Lord, I know that on occasion or even now, I've taken my eye off the ball, Lord. And I need your convicting presence to help me so that it never happens again. Maybe you're one of those that's very difficult to convict over this. Amen. God bless you. Bernie, if he needs to sit in the chair. Uh, he's okay there. Amen. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If that describes you. You've taken your eye off the ball. There's no doubt about that. It's just that you don't see it anymore. I'm praying for you this morning. If this sermon can reach you, then this is a great, great success. If it can reach the one whose world has become the norm, after having taken your eye off the ball, you created a normal world for yourself. You don't view yourself as being distracted. Or maybe you do, but... How am I ever going to get back? Getting back begins at this altar. Let's all stand. Altars are open. I want to ask you to come and find a place to pray. Amen. Let's not sing right now, okay? Let's just, you can play, but no singing. Let's come to the altar. Be honest with God about this. There's no sense in lying to God. No sense in trying to fool yourself kid yourself, deceive yourself. You got your eye off the ball over a guy, over a girl, over supposed love. Whatever it is, there's all sorts of things that we get distracted from. God, help us to focus on what matters most. We want to be like Jesus. I do always those things that please the Father. Lord, I thank you, I love you, I praise you, I need you, I exalt you, I glorify you, I worship you, Lord. God, I thank you for your saving grace that is here this morning. I thank you for every precious soul that you're touching, Lord. I pray, God, revelation, and I pray, Satan, you take your hands off of them you no longer belong to them. They belong to Christ Jesus. Amen. 
This altar is just for you to do business with God. Lord, I took my eyes off the ball, and I know it, Lord. And I want to be back where you want me to be. Father, I praise you. I love you. I need you. I exalt you. I glorify you. I worship you, Lord. You're able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. Never again, Lord, do I ever want to take my eye off the ball, O God. Oh, Lord, I want my burden back, my vision back, my destiny, O God. Oh, Lord, I praise you, I love you, I exalt you. I worship you, Lord. I rejoice in your love and in your goodness. And I thank you for your ministering presence and power. Father, you're worthy to be praised and glorified and exalted. Your name, O Lord, is above every name. Hallelujah. There's a powerful dimension here today of people recalibrating their lives in the will of God. What if God could adjust all of us who have taken our eyes off the ball and get us back in place? We become an unstoppable force for righteousness. World Evangelism Sunday is all about keeping your eye on the ball. It's all about the church collectively and us individually keeping our eye on the ball. The ball is God's will and the Great Commission and winning the lost. Father, I thank you, I praise you, I glorify you, I worship you, I rejoice, O oh God, in all that you're doing in our lives, Lord, and I praise you. Father, seal this word in every life. Let this altar represent decisions, Lord God. Oh God, thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's all stand. Remaining at the altar, everyone standing, everyone lifting our hands just as a sign of surrender. And I want us to just lift our voices, uh, surrender to Christ. Uh, let's worship Him. Let's give Him praise this morning. Amen. Father, we thank You, Lord. 
Oh, God, we glorify you. Pour out your spirit. Open the windows of heaven. Affirm, oh, God, this service with signs and wonders, with the deposit of the Holy Ghost right now. Let the fire of heaven fall and consume us, oh, Lord God, with your vision, your compassion, your love. Father, you're worthy to be praised. You're worthy, O God, to be glorified. You're worthy, Lord, to be exalted. Your name, O Lord, is high. It is high above every name, and there is no other given whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. God, you speak to every heart here today. Seal and establish your word in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's be seated, if we could, please. Just be patient with me for a few moments longer on World Evangelism Sunday. You don't need to go to the nursery if you have kids. Uh, they're going to put in overtime. It's just a few minutes. It won't be long, but go to your seat. We don't want anybody leaving right now. Uh, the ushers are going to pass out and give me one of those slips, please. Uh, these are for World Evangelism Pledges. 
I'm going to explain a little more of the dynamics of our finances tonight in our uh, annual business meeting. So again, I encourage you to come uh, to the annual business meeting uh, two, uh, two uh, sides to the coin of this offering. One is uh, uh, the spiritual dimension that uh, money has a powerful force when we use it for God's purpose. Churches, souls saved, Disciples called, developed, trained, and sent. I mean, you think about without the finances, without the resources, we can't fulfill the Great Commission. Apostle Paul, you read throughout the New Testament, there was a need for money and offerings were taken to support the Apostle Paul, to support the saints in Jerusalem. And there's a need for finances. Even in Jesus' ministry, there were uh, money uh, that was managed and finances that were raised to uh, facilitate his life uh, uh, and his earthly ministry. So there's the practical reality uh, that we need money, finances to do what we do. The Bible is a book about the handling of material wealth. Two-thirds of the parables deal in some way uh, with money or finances uh, The scripture that I read this morning, so much uh, good can come from the good use of money driven by a right spirit, and so much wrong can come and bad can come by a misuse of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money itself. Money is inanimate. It's how you think about it and what you do with it. You have a relationship with your money, and the question is, does that relationship reflect uh, God's uh, authority Uh, and God's dominion. Now, you'll learn a little bit more tonight, uh, but out of this congregation, uh, we send every month somewhere in the neighborhood of $50,000. Sometimes it's 60, sometimes it may be a little bit less. Most people would look at this church and uh, think about that and say, no, this church isn't big enough for that, but we are. We don't have Uh, wealthy, uh, you know, uh, real estate magnets, uh, multimillionaires. Most of us are common, ordinary, working men and women uh, that make fairly nominal salaries. But when you take uh, all of it and put it together, it meets the need. Listen to this statistic. This should blow your mind. In America, 2003, churches donated $21.5 billion. That's all churches, all Christianity in America, $21.5 billion. But if churchgoers had tithed 10% of their income, they would have given $134 billion. That's five times the amount... So that's the genius of God's plan of tithing, that if everybody tithes, there's enough to meet the needs of the operation of the church. In one survey of 31 denominations, 
no, of 24 denominations, it showed a decrease in giving as a percentage of disposable income as salaries increased, or as people began to be blessed financially and materially, the percentage of what they gave went, oh, I can't give that much now. I mean, 10% of 100 is $10, no problem. 10% of 100,000, well, that's a little bit different. And so the percentages fall as God blesses, which the opposite should be in place. The percentage should increase. If you're managing your money wisely as God blesses you, uh, you should be giving more in terms uh, of a percentage than you did when you didn't have very much. I mean, that just stands to reason. But the way people live, whatever their salary is, they'll overspend whatever it is. If it's, it's $25,000 a year or $125,000 a year, people are programmed uh, to overspend And so that's why these percentages work the way they do. So we have huge needs that pour in every month. And sometimes uh, we've got a $10,000 purchase that has to be made just under $10,000 tomorrow. Uh, We had to help and are having to help uh, with about, uh, well, I don't know, it's it's $7,000 or $8,000 that's going to Spain to help with their uh, new building. We're planning a new church uh, uh, in Ghana, that's costing several so several thousand dollars. So these needs continue to, continue to come. We are a parent of multiple dozens and dozens of children, and all of them need, uh, all of them have needs. So our part here in the Mother Church uh, is to supply the needs of the financial uh, arena that our missionaries and our pastors. Uh, uh, have. It's as really as simple as that, and I commend this church. Um, what we're able to do for the size congregation we have, I know of churches in our fellowship that have only one or two missionaries that are our size. We have many dozens of missionaries. We are emphasizing and focusing on uh, world evangelism, planting churches into the nations of the world, and we currently have churches that uh, Uh, from China to Africa and everywhere in between, going both ways around the planet. So uh, we're seeing God do great, great things, but it requires uh, uh, money and it requires a sacrifice. For my part, uh, I I tithe like everyone should, but I give more than my tithe uh, to world evangelism. uh, And I can tell you that God blesses when we do things like that. God does bless. I'm a testimony to that. I cannot fathom... And I know you're out there. I can't fathom people in our church that don't tithe. I don't get you. I really don't. Uh, You're benefiting beyond what you appreciate on the back of everybody else tithing. We have what we have because of the finances that come in and what we're able to do and facilitate and grow and buildings and staff uh, and all the things that we're able to do. And then somebody doesn't tithe, but they get the same benefit uh, as someone who does and gives. Uh, but they don't really, because if you're not tithing, you're under a curse. Your finances are cursed. Your circumstances are, uh, I refer you to Malachi 3 if you want to learn more about that or come to serious men's class next Sunday. We're going to talk uh, a little bit about that. So those are the very needs. And we, what we ask Uh, is that everyone in our church that can make a pledge to world evangelism. If you're a student, you have a little bit of income, 
you're a single mother, married couple, single man, single woman, uh, golden ager, not a nice way of saying it, uh, make a pledge. If it's a dollar, if it's a thousand, everyone doing their best, pooling our resources together is what makes this work. So uh, in our, uh, on this paper that I gave, there is a place for you to write your current pledge, whatever that is. And what I want you to do is write what your pledge is for the entire month. If you give it every week, don't write, uh, I give $100 a week, write $400 for the month. Otherwise, we can't calculate. So write what your current monthly pledge is. If you don't have one, if you're new, you just leave it blank. And then I want you to write uh, in the second line there, what your new pledge is going to be. It could be the same. It could be more. Hopefully it will be if God's blessed you. Or it could be less. Uh, you may have had a job. You're not working now. Uh, so there are circumstances and reasons why. Legitimately, if, you're, if you were working and now you're going to school full-time, uh, then obviously the money that you have access to uh, may not be as much. So there's good and valid reasons why someone might have to put less uh, in that place what your new monthly pledge is going to be. And then I want you to write on the third line what uh, you can give as an offering today, your best offering that you can give today uh, that's going to go to World evangelism. Remember, every single month, 50,000 goes out of here. Um, so there's constant pressure, constant need. Sometimes the account has good, tidy sum of money in it. Sometimes it gets depleted. It ebbs and flows. Uh, but most everything that we take in gets spent uh, on world evangelism. Uh, that is our highest uh, by far. Uh, the greatest expense that we have uh, as a functioning church and congregation here, and that's the way it should be. So your current pledge, write that down, what your new pledge is going to be, whether it's the same, more, or less, and then I want every one of you to give something today that's going to go to world evangelism. Give the very best and the very largest offering that you can give, and remember, uh, we do these uh, World Evangelism Sundays uh, as a contribution uh, to helping all of us keep our eye on the ball. That's what this is about. We need your finances. We pledge, and if the church doesn't get it, sometimes it'll just go elsewhere. So pledge some money. Some of your disposable income, some of you can pledge uh, a, a good percentage of what you earn. Others don't have the means that others have. So all I'm asking you to do is do your best, and God sees that, and he'll honor you for that, honor us as a church for that, and uh, give all of our churches favor, and all of our congregations need to know that we're here back at home doing this today. We're thinking about them. We're prioritizing them. We go to work every day for them so that we can give on Sunday into a pledge uh, that goes to facilitate their ability to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Bowing our heads, we're going to give, and I want you to, again, make the best monthly pledge that you can possibly give. Let it be a sacrifice. Let it be a sacrifice. And give the largest offering today. Some of you could give in the thousands. 
others in the hundreds, others in the tens. But whatever it is, I want you to give your very best, knowing that every penny of what you give to world evangelism goes to that end. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you so very much today for your grace and your favor. I pray the hand of God would work abundantly and powerfully in every life, Lord. Have liberty and right of way so that your will and your purposes can be accomplished. Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts of all the saints today, Lord, in wonderful liberality, generosity. God, give every man and every woman here a generous spirit, recognizing, Lord, that Hoarding and greed and mammon and covetousness is not the correct way to go in life, but to be liberal and generous, to give large, knowing that you control the flow of wealth and you're able to bless. And we put our finances in your hands by virtue of our obedience to the tithe and our obedience and willingness to give over and above the tithe to world evangelism. Lord, I thank you for this great people, this great church that you have blessed us with their liberality, their love, their vision, their faithfulness. Thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. And let the blessing of God be poured out over them and over this offering and over their financial interests. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we can sing whatever you have. Look what the Lord has done. Look what the Lord has for today. You can either give that, obviously, this morning. Uh, you wrote the amount. You bring the pledge. You bring that amount tonight. And then uh, with whenever you're going to make your next uh, World Evangelism pledge, you start your new one uh, then. And then this current pledge will run through next February. We do them in six-month increments. Amen. Thank God. Let's bow our heads. Uh, I'm going to ask if uh, uh, George Salas would uh, close the service in prayer. Thank God for speaking to us. Prayer meeting tonight, 530. 
the sermon tonight, the best sermon on reaching the lost you've ever heard. You don't want to miss that tonight, special presentation, and then our business meeting following. Amen. Brother, would you pray and thank the Lord?